Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Thank you, dear Jesus, that you were speaking about the temple of your body. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Several months ago, I was speaking with a group of friends, and we were discussing some of the most inspiring places we've ever visited, and uh, some of them, uh, you know, knew this uh, profession of mine, and they said, well, you're a religious chap. I mean, what's the most inspiring religious place you've ever visited? And, you know, I've been to a lot of places. I mean, I've had the opportunity to travel, and I've been to deeply meaningful locations that have a, a, a profound spiritual quality. Uh, I remember going to Glendalough in Ireland, where you know a fourth-century saint named Saint Kevin set up a monastery, and the remains are still there. I, I went to Saint Paul's Cathedral in London uh, with James Brown. I, I was at the Duomo in Florence, Italy. I've been to Saint. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City, and I've also been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Ohio. Um, And so it's a very hard decision to know which is the most sacred of locations, but I do have one. There was one that won the contest, and uh, well, stay tuned. In John chapter 2, we have an incident in the most sacred place in the world, at least what was regarded to be the most sacred place in the world by many people, millions of people, in fact at the Jewish temple. And I want to speak today about why it's such a very, very big deal, what Jesus did, but ultimately what Jesus said in that place. Uh, In fact, it was such a big deal that all of the Gospels record the story. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke place it at the end of Jesus' life, right before his death. John places it at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, maybe there were two temple cleansing events. We don't know. But nevertheless, all four Gospels recorded it. And I want to say that this text is ultimately not about a fit of rage in a public space. In fact, it's much more profound than that. It is about a new view of the sacred and a new understanding of what the temple really is. Because Jesus had this instinctive wisdom that our sense of the sacred and our sense of the place of contact, our temple must change from a house of stone to a house of flesh. So that's what I'm going to be speaking about this morning, the transition from a house of stone to a house of flesh. So we'll begin with the house of stone because that's where our text begins. And I have to do some background work in order for us to really understand the profundity of what's being expressed in this passage from John chapter 2. And so I have to ask and answer the question, what is the temple? Well, to define it very simply and using some new terminology, it is a God castle. That's exactly what it is. It's a god castle. It's a palace. It's an ornate palace dedicated to a deity. The Jewish temple, in so many ways, was not dissimilar to other temples of other deities. Uh, It had several courts. It had an innermost sanctum in which there was placed a divine throne. That was true of almost every ancient temple 
in which a deity was worshipped. The fascinating thing about the Jewish temple is that the throne was empty. In all other pagan temples, the throne was occupied by a statue of some sort. But remember, the Ark of the Covenant wasn't so much a treasure box, but a chair. It was a chair that was guarded by cherubim, gilded angelic figures that were reminiscent of Eden and the exile that human beings experienced after the fall. Cherubim guarding the throne of God. That is what uh, the temple was within Israelite religion. But there was a great scandal uh, that was mentioned with some frequency in the Old Testament regarding their own God castle, and it's this. God never asked for a God castle. That was our idea, not his. You may remember that after Israel's enslavement in Egypt, they were miraculously freed, but in that freedom, they misbehaved so much that God punished them by having them wander around in the desolate wilderness for a whole generation. And during that time, God had instructed them to create a locus of spiritual energy or a place of worship that would bind together the whole community. And it was called a tabernacle. And the tabernacle had to be made of canvas. It had to be made like a tent because Israel, as they wandered through the wilderness, had to tear it down and build it back up. Some of you who have had the misfortune of camping understand what this is like. Especially if you move from place to place, you need something that can move with you. And so the center of Israelite worship was a tent. Well, that movement was ordered by God, commanded by God. In fact, in Exodus, there are eight chapters, eight very dense, very detailed chapters about how to make this tent and how to move it. And the movement or the motion of this tent was incredibly important because it suggested something that was unique within ancient theology, and it's this. God is not limited to geography or zip code because in the ancient world it was thought that your little deity either lived in your little statue or hovered over your particular portion of geography. So Marduk liked Assyria and stuck around. Yahweh in the Bible was not limited to geography because he was the God of the whole world, of the heavens and the earth. And so he created a structure and commanded that it be built and used and reused so that Israel would know, wherever you go, there I am. Well, after Israel landed in the promised land and felt satiated and settled, they had another idea. King David in his elder years, wanted to create a monument to his God and felt a little badly that he himself was living in the lap of luxury while God was living in canvas. And so uh, he said to God, I want to build a house for you. So this is 2 Samuel 7. David said, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet and said, Go to my servant David and say, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been, note the language, moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Did I speak a word to my people of Israel saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? The obvious answer is no. 
I didn't ask for this. I don't want it. I don't understand why you're so insistent upon building it. So, David, my pledge to you is not that you'll build a house for me, but I will build a house for you. I'm going to take your pathetic monarchy and create out of it a messianic line that will eventually bring the salvation of the whole world. And no one will ever kick that monarch off his chair. That's what God says. So David says, I hear you. That's really neat. But then he dies before he can, you know, establish the temple. Well, his son picked up where David left off, didn't seem to recognize the divine concern, and through massive taxation, massive spending, and a little bit of slavery, he constructed the Jewish temple. And so, quite literally, over a generation the center of Israelite worship literally calcified. The tent became stone, canvas became concrete, and motion became marble. That became the locus, the steady locus of Israelite religion. Now, what happened within this God castle? Well, the same things that happened in the tabernacle. It just didn't move around. It became a house for death rituals. That's exactly what it was. It was a house for death rituals, namely sacrifice, because at the heart of Israelite religion was not singing, but slaying. They would take animals and kill them, not because they were barbarous or anti-animals or because PETA didn't exist then. Instead, it was a way of showing that sin is such a grievous thing in God's world. Our anti-God sentiment is so strong that we deserve some sort of punishment, but that something else, an innocent thing, could be slaughtered in our stead so that we don't have to bear the unbearable weight of justice. That's the sacrificial system. And so animals were slaughtered within this temple within this now steadied tabernacle that has been bolted to the ground. In the tabernacle and now in the temple, what is supposed to be established, if you will, is a new Eden. That's what's affected in this place, a new Eden. In other words, a space in which heaven and earth overlap, in which God's presence is once again somehow manifested, in which we and God can safely connect again, can reestablish ourselves together only through the blood. So I'm calling it a new Eden because God in the Old Testament ordered that the tabernacle be decorated with garden imagery. It was a way to reinvent the Garden of Eden in which God and man could safely meet together again. So this is the situation. That's your backdrop. And enter Jesus of Nazareth, who walks into this temple and sees that it's Passover Passover is the bloodiest of all Israelite feasts because it's on that day that you remember that a lamb was slaughtered in Egypt and you would take its blood and paint your doors with it so that the judgment angel would pass over and not take your children away. Um, well, they re-engage that ceremony in some way by offering lambs at the temple, thousands and thousands and thousands of lambs and a lot of blood. This is the context for our passage today. And there were people who noticed this pattern of ritualized feasts, and they thought to themselves, how can we make a little bank? And so how about we set up some shops? And they did that. In, in some of the, uh, the most important courts, they would set up these little stores for people to buy things and trade things. And Jesus saw this Black Friday experience at Passover. And yes, he flips out. And this is from verse 14. I encourage you to follow along. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple 
with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So what is Jesus noting? Uh, He is noting in his words and in his behavior that people have perverted the God castle, that they have made the God castle a castle of mammon, a market made for profit. And notice it's not so much anger. People say, well, Jesus was angry. Well, that's true, but it was principally zeal. That's the word that the Bible uses to describe what Jesus is feeling right now. And it's referencing an Old Testament story. Zeal for your house will consume me. And what is zeal? It's great enthusiasm to support that supports a particular cause. And what's the cause? What's Jesus's point in doing these things? Something like this. If you're going to have a God castle, you probably should treat it like a God castle and not as an excuse to rip people off and make money for yourselves. Don't treat a God castle like a flea market or like the stock market. I'm not sure there's much difference between the two things. This is why Jesus taught us, you know, in the Lord's Prayer. It's one of the first things that we're supposed to say as we pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. There's something sacred about God's name and this structure that was supposed to represent and communicate the truth of God's name. And here it's being polluted. The same thing can be said about the commandment that was just read this morning about do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Quite literally, the Hebrew means do not wear or take upon oneself the name of the Lord your God in vain, meaning don't present yourself as some fantastically religious person when the motives behind that God garb are anything but. Like, don't play games with spirituality. There's something especially wicked about that kind of hypocrisy. And Jesus hates that kind of sacrilege, that glib hypocrisy. And so he chases those money-grubbing souls out of his castle. So um, when I was uh, in uh, the the Vatican, I went there uh, in 2001, I was there as a student of architecture. I was there also uh, witnessing this particular center of religious expression of some of my brothers and sisters in the faith. I admired very deeply the architecture. What I did not admire in St. Peter's Square when I was there to to do some praying and to do some walking around is how many people were trying to sell me kitsch. There were lots of people with lots of little trays of trinkets that were trying to sell me things, including my favorite glow-in-the-dark rosaries. Um, As much as I've always wanted one, like, I I think I was okay. And they kept peddling all these cheap little trinkets and wares at me, and they were permitted to do so. And I felt gross. I'm like, I'm not even a Roman Catholic, but I respect this tradition more than you seem to. Like, put your kitsch away and get out. Let people, leave people alone. Let them pray. Let them connect with God. Well, these pilgrims who witnessed Jesus chasing out oxen, can you imagine that? Chasing out oxen and animals and money changers and getting rid of their currency, throwing it around like a wild man. These pilgrims were scandalized, probably because they saw this as an act of sacrilege. So you're coming into the most sacred place in the world on the most sacred day of the world? And you're disrupting the process. What is wrong with you? And so they say in verse 18, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, you best prove your authority if you're going to bring abuse and blasphemy to the most sacred place on the planet. You want to do this. Uh, You better have a very good reason. 
What's interesting is Jesus acquiesces. He says, you want a sign? I'll give you one. And here it is. And of course, it's parabolic and mysterious because Jesus just can't give a straight answer to people that aren't uh, straight-headed. He says, essentially, I'll give you a new temple. I'll give you a new temple that you can tear down. And if you do, I'll rebuild it. Now, he meant something more than brick and mortar, though they didn't interpret it that way until long after he was dead and raised. But he was essentially saying, I will give you a temple made of sinews and skin and bones. You can rip it to shreds, and I'll build it right back. And so Jesus, in this action, is prepping people for a grand religious transition, a new understanding of the sacred, from stone to skin. From stone to skin. So in one sentence, Jesus completely overturns the theology of, the location of, and the material of the God castle. This is what he says in verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then later, there is an editorial comment. He was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, Jesus, unlike many of his contemporaries, knew God's original intention, which was not for a beautiful metal marble god castle. Instead, it was for a movable, motion-oriented tabernacle. And he understood that even that was fulfilled, not in a structure or a tent, but in his own olive-toned skin. His body was going to be the temple. He was going to be the meeting ground between God and people. He would be the place where heaven and earth overlap. And he would be the place where blood atonement would be offered and would satisfy the justice of God permanently. Jesus knew that Herod's temple had a shelf life and that he himself was the stonework's expiration date. After he had done what he had come to do, it was over. And that temple was removed from the face of the earth in AD 70. And we knew this from the start because if we read John chapter 1, the prologue of John's gospel, we would remember these initial words. The word, that is Jesus, became flesh. And the translation says, and dwelt among us. Quite literally, it means tabernacled among us, tented among us. That the tabernacle, the presence of God in motion is back. But this time with all of skin. And then, remember John chapter 4, a few chapters from ours, uh, the woman at the well, the woman at the well is a Samaritan, she doesn't like going to Jerusalem to worship because her people don't do that kind of thing, they have their own separate place they like to worship, and they're really mad that the Jews demand that you come to, to Jerusalem into their little temple and worship there, and she's having this argument with Jesus because she's also like involved in multiple dubious relationships, and she's trying to distract him with theology. Um, and he says to her, sweetly interrupting here, darling, that's Ethan's translation, darling, there is a time coming when it's not going to be about mountains and temples, but true worshipers are those who worship in spirit and in truth. That is who the father is after. So he is overthrowing this whole notion of a central stony temple. And so Jesus invites these Passover pilgrims, scandalized people, to do something radical, tear it down. Or more specifically, you can tear me down. And when you do, I will be rebuilt. This passage prefigures another moment, another moment in which we see zeal 
only a wrong-headed zeal. We see rage, only a poisoned rage. Because on that latter day, the same Christ who took up the whip will have his own body, heaven's true temple, scourged and torn open. The Christ who drove out evil salesmen from the temple would himself be driven out. He will be crucified outside the city gates, as Hebrews 11, or the temple will be excommunicated from the temple. This is how Jesus became the temple, though. He offered his life as a ransom for many. He became the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He became the locus of regathering, of meeting, of reconciliation, the blurring place between heaven and earth, the place of sacrifice in order to establish an everlasting unity. And that death and resurrection in which Jesus himself becomes the locus of presence changed how we see sacredness and temples forever. You know what's interesting? In the New Testament, as the authors more and more consider the effect of Jesus of Nazareth, they push even further than he did during his life. Because both St. Paul and St. Peter have a radicalized understanding of what it means to be a temple. This is what St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. This is like 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. He reflects and says, do you not know that you, you, yins, plural, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Peter agrees in 1 Peter 2. He writes, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So not only is Jesus Christ the locus of heaven and earth, of the great meeting of minds, the place of atonement, that is his church is sort of an extension of himself. We are the body of Christ, after all, connected to him. And so we together become this new temple, this place of meeting, this place of safe reconciliation because of his atonement. See, God had originally wanted a mobile temple, a motion-oriented tabernacle, the locus of his presence to move from place to place, showing that God reigns from place to place. And now he has it again. He has what he always wanted. Only now it's beyond a canvas tent in the wilderness. It's believers in exile. All of us together. So let me offer you this closing word about us and what I regard as a temple temptation. A temple temptation. Maybe this is a uniquely Anglican phenomenon, but I'm not convinced that it is. But it is a very real temptation, and it's this, to move in our love, in our love, from skin back to stone. To revert, to go back to another way of encountering God. Sometimes it is very easy to adore finery, well-hewn marble, lovely frescoes, gorgeous acoustics, exquisite music, and all the rest. Sometimes I hear people speak about the importance of creating a sacred space, and there is something about me that dies every time I hear that. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Uh, I'm not saying beauty is unimportant. Not saying that at all. I'm not saying structures are unhelpful. Not saying that at all. We are created to love beauty. I was an art minor. I mean, I paid my way through college by drawing and designing things. And a few tattoos, I might add. I understand the importance of great art, after all. But I think, like any good thing, it can be pushed too far. 
and we can become sort of Platonists trying to create a heavenly ideal on the earth that God has not commanded. This is, uh, to quote St. Paul in a slightly different context, a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. It is so easy and subtle at first. It is so easy to worship worship. It is so easy to adore finery for its own sake. Here's where I think Anglicans really get messed up with this. Many Anglicans that I know uh, grew up something else. And their Anglican connection is what Freud would have called an abreaction to their rather sort of unseemly and tacky Christianity of their youth. And so they leave there, whatever it was, being a Baptist or a non-denominational person, <laughs> and, have, and have finally found liturgy and good taste and finery and a British accent half the time, evidently. <laughs> and so they, they morph, and then they, they have a way of abreacting and disassociating from their own personal histories. And by the way, much that was good in their own personal histories. And this abreaction is really dangerous because if you are here today because you love shiny chalices, I'll put it curtly, that's weird. It's really weird and creepy. And it will not help you, by the way. When crisis strikes, like when the divorce happens, if you ever have a miscarriage, God forbid, if you lose a major friendship, if you lose a parent to death, it will not matter what the communion wine is placed in. It will not matter what the minister wears or how flowy the vestments are. It doesn't matter. That stuff is at best peripheral, and it is very dangerous to worship worship, because if we worship worship, we're not worshiping the one who is worthy of worship. And so we have to be careful of that. I think beauty is wonderful, but beauty is always secondary. It is a better servant than a master. And friends, remember that Jesus' standard of worship, Jesus' standard of beauty had nothing to do with architecture. Nothing to do with architecture at all. Remember in Luke 21 where the disciples were like tourists in the temple saying, look at all the pretty stones. Jesus said, yeah, it's terrific. They're all going to be torn down in four years, so it's not really going to matter very much. Um, he didn't really have a high estimation of it. Moreover, the New Testament, when it talks about the church, never talks about a building. More than that, it never, like the Old Testament book of Exodus, gives us eight chapters on how to design new tabernacles. Never does that. It's not interested in it at all. This is why Christians often met in homes. Jesus' standard of beauty was about people because people are the church. I know that's cliched, but just because it's a cliche doesn't mean it isn't true. We together are a fleshy temple built on the foundation stones of that temple, which is Jesus Christ. We are the palaces of the eternal spirit. You are the God castle. He doesn't want another one. He doesn't need it. It's you. That's what I see here today. You know, when I stare at you this morning and your faces and your skin tones, you know, your eyes, your hands, your dynamism, when I see that, I'm thinking to myself, this is where God walks. This is where God walks. He's walking through the corridors of these souls. You are a Sistine Chapel without parallel. That is the Christ perspective. So back to my original question. What is, for me, the most inspiring religious site in the world? Again, I've seen many, but I witnessed it in Ireland. I had a friend with whom we were staying who asked on Sunday morning, where do you want to go? Let's go to church. I'm like, okay. She said, well, we could go to the Catholic church 
and they have a very fascinating building that was designed by a student of Frank Lloyd Wright. And I'm like, not my style, but okay. And she said, we could go there, but the priest is what we would call morally dubious. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. And she said, we could go to the Anglican church. The building is gothic and beautiful, but the priest doesn't believe in God. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and she said, or we could go to like this little blue collar working class Pentecostal church. I'm like, bingo. That's where we're going. So that's where we went. And let me tell you, friends, unbelievably tacky, unbelievably tacky. Uh, it was this dingy little room that was like alabaster colored with those ceiling tiles that were chipped and half falling down. And, and you know, there were like tacky sewn banners everywhere and bad music. They kept singing that song, I'm Trading My Sorrows. Have you ever heard that? The yes, the yes, the yes, yes. And you're like, that song makes me wish that music never existed. Um, it's just so bad. And there was like this unpolished sermon, and, and, uh, and, and yet it was all real. They were really praying. Like they were really singing to Jesus. They were really hearing the word. They really wanted to know more. They really wanted to care for each other. And I looked around in this tacky building, and I thought, this is the temple. Like this is it. Because these were real human beings who were devastated by life and found a Christ who met them in the devastation and brought some resurrection. It was full of the spirit and truth, to quote Jesus, right? It was a God castle. And I'm not saying, by the way, it's either that or sort of emptiness within a beautiful cathedral. It doesn't have to be like that. You can have both beautiful worship and the reality of a living Christ in your midst. You can do that. But if I had to choose between finery and emptiness, and tackiness with the spirit. I'm going tackiness with the spirit any day of the week. Because that's where the temple is. That's the God castle. So my point is very simple. Let's value the very architecture that Jesus himself founded and valued. Not so much stone, but skin. And if we have a stone building, and again, I'm not adverse to a Gothic structure, let's always see it as something very secondary. Because it's not the temple. You are. Cardinal Beefy, I think, said it best. We are all miserable wretches whom God has built together to make a glorious church. And I am staring right now at that glorious church, a God castle, a new Eden, a meeting ground of heaven and earth. The zeal of heaven has pursued you and bought you with costliest of currencies. And the bleeding charity of heaven has evidenced that you, yes, even you, were more than worth it. You are the jaw-droppingly gorgeous Camelot of Christ, now and always. Amen. Free at last, they took your life. They could not.